First Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, do you have these songs, Pastor Mike? Can I, can I take them off? Okay. First Thessalonians chapter 2, and last week we finished off in verse, verse 8. We're going to just read verse 7 downward again. So let's just start in verse 7. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know, how we, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Now from verse 7 down to verse 12, you have the theme of, I want to say, the, parent, the parental aspect of pastoring or the parental aspect of leadership in, <clears throat> in ministry. In verse 7 and 8, it speaks of a, a nurturing um, or a nurse, a mother who's nursing her child. And then at the end in verse 11, we have as a father does towards his children. So you have the mother and the father aspect coming out through these verses. As we said last week, what we finished up with was how Paul was defending the, the message he came preaching, how he was defending that he came not seeking worldly vanity or anything like that. He pointed to his testimony, the content of his message, the manner and the motive of his message. And what we saw here in verse 7 and 8 last week was that the manner of his message, the last thing in the manner of his message was his humility. He was humble in the bringing of his message. Even though, like a mother, has the authority over the child, the mother chooses to humble herself, to nurture, to serve that young child. And so the same, Paul says, the same should be of a minister of Christ. He should serve, as Christ also gave us an example, that we should follow in his steps in serving those who are, or who are under us, if you could say it like that. So, let's continue with verse 8. Verse 8 says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. So Paul is referring here to the previous verse, verse 7, by starting by using this word, so being affectionately. He's basically saying, because of the strong maternal instinct I have towards you, um, and this affection I have towards you, I care deeply for your spiritual well-being. He's saying, because of this maternal instinct I have, I care deeply for your spiritual well-being. Let's have a look at a few examples of Paul. You can turn to Romans. just want to show you a few examples of how Paul cared deeply for those he ministered to. Paul had a desire to see 
anyone, whether it was Jew or Gentile, who he was ministering to, to get, see them get saved, to see them grow. And he speaks with very, could you say, passionate language about these people. So you can turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And verse 3. Romans 9 verse 3 says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. It says, My heart's desire. In chapter 9, he says, I wish that I could be accursed to see them saved. Look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Look at Second Corinthians 12. Now, Paul is obviously the one who wrote Romans and Second Corinthians and these are all people he ministered unto. And in Romans he speaks about Jews and here he's speaking about Gentile people. Second Corinthians 12 and verse 15. It says, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. And so even irrespective of whether he was receiving love back, he was loving those whom God has given him to love and to serve. Have a look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 and verse 19. Paul says here, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He's speaking to them as children, almost as a mother who's in labor, who is having to fight and fight and fight until this, these children of his grow up into Christ. And Christ be formed in them. And so the, the words or the language that Paul uses is very passionate. It's very intimate. It's very, he cares deeply for these people. It's not, just, it's not just something he does on the side. It is, he's consumed by his passion to see these people grow and serve God. You can turn back to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, and we're also going to, Paul also uses language like this, yeah, as we saw in verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, because you were dear unto us, and he says, we were willing to give up our souls. But look down to verse 17 quickly as well. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. It says that, but we, brethren, being taken from you, for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good, um, we thought it good to be left at Athens. I thought it... Huh? To, yeah, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Sorry. <laughs> Anyways, it's when you've read it so many times, you start putting your own spin on it and then... 
Alright, so we see there in verse 17 that he, they were taken from him in presence but not in heart. And he endeavored the more abundantly. It's like when a mother's child is taken away from her and that she, she longs to be with that, even if it's just for a short time. She can only spend so much time away from that child before she needs to be with that child again, to take care of that child, to see that child. And so the same here, this is the imagery that Paul is using here. He's saying, I don't want to be away from you. I care for you. I care for your growth. Now, having seen all of this and seeing that this is the model through which Paul ministered unto his people, we can definitely say that we need more of this natural and honest care in the body of Christ today. We have too many pastors who are out there either for their own selfish gain and to preach a message to just get people to listen to them, to like them, or you have those who are completely heartless in the ministry who just, you know, this is kind of like a job, it's just something I do and um, I don't really care for the people. But we see Paul ha not having any of those attitudes. He's addressing the one where it was for money or filthy lucre and stuff. That's the one he's addressing, but there's also the one of being heartless. Sometimes it comes to question whether those people who are preaching, who are the ministers, the, the reverends or whatever of a church, whether they are truly even called to the ministry or whether it was a last resort or a choice that was just made and not a calling. But we can thank God that we have a pastor who deeply cares for his flock. And we thank God for that. And his desire, I know, is to please the one who called him into the ministry. Now, let's continue with our verse. Verse 8, it says, Not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. Now, the gospel of God, as we know, is the power of God unto salvation. Okay? So we can equate that to birth. There's the gospel of God being preached and someone gets saved. Okay? There's, there's birth in this analogy with the mother. But like a mother, he did not just care for the birth of the child, but the growth and the nourishment and the, the care of that child once it has been born. And unfortunately, many churches only focus on getting people saved and the true dis there are no true disciples to make disciples who can serve God. And um, I was speaking to an old friend of mine in the week, and he's been church hopping and stuff, and he feels like he's found a place now to go to church to. And he was telling me how they want him to be, to be part of the leadership of the church. And um, I thought to myself, I don't even know if he can explain the gospel to someone. And it, it was scary to me that the prerequisites of being a leader or being a disciple maker has become as much as being a popular face or a faithful face in a church. No prerequisites as to anything Paul speaks about being unblameable, being of good report, being like there's no prerequisites biblical except for just a face that people will turn to but what is actually happening when those people are discipling? There, is there any discipleship going on? But, as I want to bring it back here, it says, not the gospel of God only, but our own souls. Now, when it says he would give up his own soul, it means he would literally give of himself. Who he is, he would give of himself. We read there in um, 2 Corinthians 12, 15, where it says, I would spend and be spent for you. 
And so that is that giving of his soul. So why, it made me think, why would a mother give of her soul? Why would a mother give of herself for the child? Now obviously it's natural, I don't think I have to tell you that that should be the case. Uh, it's a natural thing for a mother to be willing to give herself up for this child. But what would be, could I say, one of the key reasons behind it? And I thought a lot about it, and I think one of the key things would be unselfishness. Unselfishness because they count the child's life dearer than their own life. They want to have that child see life, to love, to laugh, to know Christ. They have that desire for that child more than for themselves. And so we saw that when Paul spoke about Israel and how he said that my heart's desire, I wish that I could be accursed so that these could meet Christ. And so he's saying that this being or giving of my soul is something I'm giving, I'm, I'm being unselfish, I want to see you grow. So why do I spend myself? Why would I be spent for you? It's because I want to see you know Christ, I want to see you grow in your love and in your knowledge of Christ. That's why I'm willing to accursed myself. That's why I'm willing to go to the extent of myself or beyond that to see you grow. And you can think why this can be so heart-wrenching for a pastor with such a desire to see people grow and then it not happening. As it happened in 2 Corinthians 12, even though I love you more, you don't love me back. That is something that can take a toll on you. Now, let's get into verse 9. <clears throat> Paul starts in verse 9. He says, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail. Now, he says, For ye remember. Paul is telling the Thessalonians to look back at their start, where they started when Paul came. And he said, Remember when we came how we labored among you, how we travailed among you. So he's pointing them back to their, to their origin. He's pointing them back to where they, they got to new, know Christ and where they started growing. So the question is, do you ever look back and thank God for what He has done for you in your life? Do you ever look back and see or thank Him for saving your soul? Do you ever, do you ever look back and thank Him for the people He sent on your path to bring you to Christ. That is what he's saying. Remember our labor and travail among you, laboring for you. So do you look back and thank God for those people that brought you to a knowledge of the truth? I was thinking this week about this and just, you know, well, I didn't grow up, I, I never had that turn where you like go into drugs and stuff and then, you know, I, I don't have a testimony like that. Um, but I grew up in church, and um, and I I knew how to I knew how to play church, if I could put it like that. I knew how to to say the right things and to um, put the right face on and to make sure people know um, that I am I'm a good boy and um, all of, all of that. And but to this day, when I think back on the things that I did and the things that I thought and my my desires in life and my lusts and, and how it was completely away from anything godly. How my life was driven by my, my, 
my pleasures and my desires for, for things that are completely foreign to God. I think back and I thank God for taking me from that because, you know, um, it's, it's, it's easy to see a drastic change when someone was outwardly so bad. But I praise God because taking something that already looks okay but not okay and making it perfect is, is something to praise God for. And I think it, we all can do with a little bit of looking back and like David said after he sinned, he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And we all can look back, and I don't think we look back enough to see what God has done for us. We get so used to being saved that we forget what it feels like to be lost. And um, we definitely can do with, as Paul said, remember. Look back, remember. He says, remember what? For our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we, um, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. And then he says, we preached unto you the gospel of God. So being a minister of the gospel to Paul was not just a nine-to-five job. He says we labored night and day. It was not just a nine-to-five job and neither should being a Christian be. Being a Christian is not something you do selectively. Now, why do I say it's not that. Well, first of all, some, being a Christian is not something you do. Being a Christian is something you are. That is, you, are, you can't, just like you can't stop existing, okay? You can't, well, you can. Just like, <laughs> just like you can't put a, push the pause button on your existence, okay? You can't push the pause button on being a Christian. You can't say, okay, I'm pausing Christianity now and I'm playing this life. And then I'm pausing that life and then I'm playing Christianity again. You can't compartmentalize your Christianity. It's not a nine-to-five job. Now, we often do that when we think about our, our life in terms of, okay, church is a Christian act. Um, devotions, if you do that, is a Christian act. Or going out on a church thing or something, that's a Christian act. But why... If you are a Christian, you don't do Christian things, you are a Christian, how can only certain things be Christian, right? And this is why Paul admonishes the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. You can read from verse 13. It says, but all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever things doth make manifest is light. Then verse 14, it says, wherefore he saith, awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. Now, this is speaking to Christians and he's saying, awake thou that sleepest. He's saying, skrik wakker, essentially. I think I heard someone say, um, maybe you can correct me, but I think in, in I think it's Zulu, it's VUCA. Is it VUCA? Yeah, it's nice. It's like, VUCA, you know? Skrik wakker. Paul is saying, just wake up if you're asleep. If you're a Christian, you can sleep. You can just sleep. Go through and 
you put that you put it to sleep and there's nothing being alive there's nothing awake but Paul is saying arise from dead and Christ shall give thee light if you are walking around in darkness God will give you light to bring you out of that darkness he will awake you to your Christian walk now as I said you are a Christian every minute of every day act like it not at certain times let's come back to verse 9 now Paul mentions here labor and he also mentions travail now travail is painful toil and distress Paul refers to a woman being in travail referring to her labor so I would say travail has also a psychological a side to it it also has a mental side to it emotional side to it and as a true and faithful godly minister of the Lord this is what Paul was going through he was going through travail so church we need to remember to pray for those who minister unto us we need to remember to pray for them have a look at um, in um, 1st Timothy chapter 5 First, oh, First Timothy, sorry, First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, um, chapter five. We need to pray for our ministers. First Thessalonians, chapter five, and verse twenty-five. It says, Paul is asking the brethren. He says, "Brethren, pray for us." Look at Second Thessalonians, chapter three, and verse one. It says, "Finally, brethren." Pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. So praying for those who travail for you is something that is very necessary. Some way Paul also says that we need to pray for him for boldness. Right? You need to pray for those who are ministering that they would be able to devote themselves to the Lord, to stand strong against all the difficulties that they face. But then it also speaks about labor in verse 9. It says, for our labor and travail. Now, this labor is something I, when I went through it the first time, I completely missed this aspect of labor. But what Paul is referring to here is Acts chapter 18, verse 3 where he speaks about his labor as a tent maker. In Acts 18, verse 3, speaking about Aquila, he says, and because he, Aquila, was one of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. So Paul was a tent maker, and he labored. Now, why is it important to mention this? Why can't we just say, it's labor as in he was laboring in the ministry. He was laboring physically, studying his word. Why, why is it important to mention that it was something beyond that? Well, Paul had a different view of his day-to-day -day job. He saw his job as something that enables him to be a part of the ministry. He saw his job as an enabling factor, a sustaining factor. Something that brings in money so that he can eat, so that he can have energy, so that he can literally go out and minister to people, 
to have something to give to people. So he didn't just see his job as a means to get money and get food and have a home. He saw it as a way to be able to minister. So it's important to make that distinction because it opens this message here of do you see your job, do you see what you are doing as something that opens doors to you to do more for the Lord? Also, something else why this is important is it means Paul worked and preached. And we often say it's either or. It's either I'm a businessman or I'm a preacher. Or, you know, it's that clear-cut distinction. It's not, why can't you be a businessman who glorifies God in the workplace? Now, what I'm not saying is, is that be at work and don't work, but preach the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying be at work, do a, the best job you can do, and look for opportunities, make, schedule, use lunch, whatever, to preach or to minister to people that you can because you have a job. If you didn't have a job, you would be walking around looking for a job, worrying about, begging for food. You wouldn't be able to be an effective minister because you have a job, because you have opportunities. You can do that. And so it's something to praise God for. Don't divide the two. Also, often it's said that it's, it's the evangelist or it's the pastor's responsibility to reach the people, right? But think about it. How is Pastor Mike going to reach the colleagues at your work? Practically. Are you going to invite him to your work and then let him preach there every week or something? Like, just practically. And also, will that have the same effect as you who's with them every day, living a life, showing an example, and then preaching the gospel? And so, it is, you have a great opportunity to be able to reach people, those you see every day. So, don't set it aside for the work of just the pastor. Now, since I brought the topic of Paul's finances supporting him in the ministry, I thought it would be clear just to give the other side of this, good to give the other side of this as well, because even though you're a pastor, you have a natural need as well. Even though you're in the ministry, you still have natural needs. And um, <laughs> I spoke to a lady recently. She said, but if you are in the ministry, you don't need money. I thought, what is she, what is she trying to say? Like, but she's, she's just saying, you can have 500 rand and get through everything in the month. And I thought, sure. She says, you just need faith. And I thought, okay. Either my faith is too small or you have an incorrect understanding <laughs> of how things work. <laughs> but anyways, so the other side of it is, in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 14, it speaks about muzzling God's ox, right? No, 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 that's the wrong verse. That's in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. It speaks about muzzling God's ox and that you shouldn't muzzle God's ox. In other words, the ox that is treading your corn, the ox that is working, that is laboring in the ministry should be allowed to eat of the fruit of that ministry, okay? And the same that is also said in 1 Corinthians 9, as I mentioned, 9.14, is the aspect of he who lives, preaches the gospel should live by the gospel. Okay? 
So preaching the gospel and living by the gospel, that is also a principle that is there. And we looked at it last week. Why? Because the Philippians were supporting Paul while he was in Thessalonica so that he could also be able to minister better to those people. Having someone supporting that pastor or that minister or that missionary is better than that pastor working a full-day job so that he can be a better minister. Now, Paul said he worked because, in verse 9, he didn't want to be chargeable. That is to say, he didn't want to be burdensome. He didn't want to charge them for what he was doing. Okay? So he wasn't chargeable. But, and the reason you don't want the, the minister to work, preferably, is what's said in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says, But, speaking of them, we give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, He's saying, set people in authority to take care of things in the church so that the ministers can give themselves to prayer and to the study of the Word. Yeah. So that is, the, that is the ideal. There will be cases where the minister will also have to work, and that is what we also see here. But either example is so that the pastor can be as effective in the ministry in reaching the people that he needs to reach. Okay, verse 10. It says, Ye are witnesses... And God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now, how holily, how justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves. So Paul calls to witness God and these believers. Because his testimony was watertight and he was standing in a pure conscience before God. That's why he can call these people to the stand. And just a side note, I want to mention that a godly pastor, a godly minister should be able, when he is falsely accused, point to the church and say, I call them to my witness. And I think that is a, a great picture how he doesn't have to fight his own battle because he knows that the people whom he loves, love him. Now, continuing. Now, what did Paul want the church and God to testify of? Of his holiness his justness, and his blamelessness. Now, when I read this, I thought, okay, this is easy to explain. And, you know, holy, we are holy and, holy and justified through Christ. And because of that, we are, we are unblameable when we stand before, before the throne. And then I realized it says we behaved. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this, is, <laughs> this is a bit different. Now, he's referring to his conduct as holy, as just, and as blameless. Who of you would like to call God and the church to testify of your holiness, blamelessness, and justness? That's quite something, right? Your conduct, right? Not a theological answer about what's happened to you spiritually. Now, how could Paul say this? How could he have, or how could he be wholly just and blameless? How is it possible to be that in your conduct? In order to understand this, we need three things. We need to understand three things. Firstly, we need to understand that the Bible has referred to people by these terms historically. So we have Noah being called a righteous man. We have um, Job being called a, a just man. 
We have, example, we have the, the parents of John the Baptist, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were blameless. We have, Paul says, if you're going to have a deacon and a bishop, they should be blameless. All right? So there have been people who have qualified. So it is possible. That's the first thing we need to realize. Secondly, what we need to realize is that we need proper definitions of these words. Okay. It's easy to have a distorted definition of this word and therefore how on earth am I supposed to be able to attain this? And then thirdly, what we also need is we need to finish the verse. <laughs> and the end of the verse says, Unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. The blamelessness, the holiness and the justness is among you that believe. Now the reason it's important to distinguish that is because if we look at the world, they will be able to accuse you because the standard by which they judge you is different. It's not better, it's different. Think of, for example, you will be blamed of being div divisive. Okay? As a Christian, you're divisive. You're saying that Christianity is the only true way to, to God. So you're divisive. So there you're already, you're blamed. Then also when it comes to your holiness, they will accuse you of self-righteousness, bigotry, homophobia, etc. Just because, and all these unholy terms, just because of your stance on certain social issues. So because you have a biblical approach, a stance, you will be called these things. And in their sense, you are unholy. Then also, you will, or the, what they will call the fining of a Christian's Christian business owner for not wanting to offer services to a gay marriage, they would fine him, close his business, and call that justice. Do you see how, if from a different standard, all those three things, they can be just, holy, and you can be blamed, unholy, and not just in your conduct, just because you're being judged from a different standard. Now, that's why it's important to understand that it's before those who believe. It's before the believers. But let's look at some proper definitions of these three words. Now, you may be familiar with it, but to be holy is to be set apart. And it says to be set apart for or by God. Okay? So you're set apart for God or you're set apart by God. In the, in the Hebrew, the, the, um, the word holy is translated as apartness, apartness or sacredness. Do you see that separate aspect to it? Then also, the word just means... What does just mean? Yeah, it means according to truth means to be according to truth or be according to facts. Okay? And then the last one is blameless. Blameless means to be pure or unspotted. Okay? That is what blameless means. So if we have those three definitions and we have the that it has to be in front of the church, and we know that it's attainable, we can say that Paul was basically saying, you 
and God can testify how our behavior was not like the world. It was set apart. But rather according to the truth. And so our testimony could be pure and unspotted. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you and God can testify how our behavior was not like the world's, but rather according to the truth of God, so that our testimony is pure and unspotted. Um, one commentator said it like this, that your, um, it's consistency of character and dedication to duty. Consistency of character and dedication to duty. That's what it means to live holily, justly, and blamelessly before those who believe. So, seeing as though this is attainable and has been attained, let's strive to be these types of Christians every day, blameless and unspotted um, in, from the world. All right, we're going to try and get a bit further to verse 11. Verse 11 says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. So Paul compares the pastor or the role of a minister to a father. And as we saw in verse 7 and 8, he compares it to a mother. Now Paul clearly had a parental approach to the ministry. A parental approach to the ministry. Not a daycare center approach to the ministry. Because both look after children, but they look after children for different reasons and in different ways. The daycare approach is approaching it like a job. That is how you, you approach it as a job. Whereas with the parenting one, rearing godly children is a personal, sacrificial, day-to-day -day responsibility and privilege. And that is how Paul approached it. Day-to-day -day privilege, sacrifice, and it was personal. It wasn't a job. It wasn't something to get done and just get behind the back. So this is also a warning to ministers, not just current but future ones as well, never to lose that intimate, personal, and natural affection for the flock. Never to lose that intimate and personal affection for the flock. Now, Paul specifically uses fathers and mentions three characteristics that every good father should portray. He mentions exhortation, comfort, and charge. So every good father should portray comfort, uh, exhortation, comfort, and charge. Now, it's implied that this is what a father should be. Otherwise, he would not use this example to explain it to pagan people. Okay? So this is what a father should be. He's not trying to convince you of it. So, exhort is the act of inciting and encouraging that which is good. Have a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So exhorting is the act of inciting and encouraging that which is good. If, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. 
Then he says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesying. So he goes on and on. He starts in verse 14 by saying, Now we exhort you. An exhortation, he's saying, Guys, this is what you should live like. I am encouraging you and say, Live like this. This is something a father should do. A father should not just let the child find his feet as he goes through life and then reprimand him if he does something wrong. It's an exhortation to say, here is the standard. This is what God expects. This is what I expect. And then encouraging them to attain those things. That is what exhortation is. That is what a father should do. Then, comfort. I'm not going to give you a definition of comfort because every father knows what comfort is because he sees the mother do that. And it's unfortunate that only, or a lot of the times, it's mostly the mothers who offer comfort. Dads should offer comfort to their children. So dad does, do you provide comfort and provide safety for your children? Because God comforts. In Isaiah 40 verse 1, God says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith God. He also says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. See, God, a fatherly role, offering comfort. And then charge. Now, charge is not to send your children into battle. Charge is also not to use a taser to discipline them. Okay? Charge. <laughs> Does it work, Francois? <laughs> okay. <laughs> As I tried, okay. So, do you, offer, do you offer the stick or the taser? <laughs> like your, your choice, of, choice of punishment. Okay, so... To charge is not that. <laughs> it is to instruct. Um, a, ju- a judge would instruct his jury. Okay? Would charge his jury. That is what charge means. This instruction is through word and deed. It is practicing what you're preaching. I have seen and I've heard too often parents saying something like, do as I say, don't do as I do. And what happens to that child? That child does as the parent does. Do what I say and don't do what I do. Now, think about this practically. I'm sure you've experienced it before where you've seen someone act in a certain way or do something and that instructs, that encourages you to also make that change or do something in your life. That person, without necessarily saying something, was instructing you, like a brother in Christ, instructing you to live a more God-fearing life. So there we have instruction through practicing what you are preaching. Why would we think that it works any different between a father and his child? Right? A father's instruction through his conduct will shape that child. And so that is a big responsibility and a great honor at the same time. 
Now the last thing I want to show to you on this charge, have a look at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. It says, I charge thee, therefore, before God. Now, Timothy was referred to as Paul's son, right? So we have Paul as father, Timothy as son, and here we see Paul saying, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, have a look also at chapter 6 verse 13. Paul says, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus. Have a look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1. It says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus. Each time Paul charges Timothy, instructs Timothy, he says, before God and before Jesus. Now, are the charges that you give your son or your daughter good or are they godly? Can you do that in the sight of God? Do you give good instruction or do you give godly instruction? Also, are they given because you like it or because God likes it? Do you see how you pull your parenting, your charging, your instruction back to does this please God or does this please me? Does this promote godliness or just worldly goodness? And so you bring it back to God. Now, being a father like this is a tall order, but you need a lot of grace, right? You need a lot of grace to be able to... Uh, luckily, I have a lot of grace. <laughs> I, my wife is Grace. If you didn't know that, her name is Grace. So I, I don't need so much grace. I, I leave it to her. <laughs> Anyways, no, I'm not doing Okay. But what is the end goal? What is the end goal of this father? Why is this father or this pastor like this? Why does he exhort and comfort and charge? Well, verse 12 gives us the answer. Back to our text, sorry. First Thessalonians 2 verse 12 gives us the answer of why this father, this pastor does this. That you walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. So why does this father do this? So that his children may serve God, the one who delivered them from darkness into the kingdom of God's glory. That is why this father is motivated to live this life. Isn't it wonderful that through godly rearing, fathering and mothering, as we saw in this text today, that a child can grow to walk worthy, as it says in verse 12, to walk worthy of God. Pastors and parents should strive alike to be the examples God expects them to be. And in so doing, bring up disciples or children who serve and love God. And I think that is the message that Paul was preaching here from verse 7 to 12. Why the parental aspect of pastoring and then also why just the parental aspect of it in bringing up children is so important to bring up people children who walk worthy of God let's pray father thank you for this morning thank you once again that we can open your word and learn from you lord
Lord, please help us to, to grow up, Father, to be, to be parental ministers, Lord, to care for those you have given us to, to disciple and to, to lead and to, um, to bring up, Father. Help us to be good parents. Lord, this world needs better parents. Our children may know God and fear Him and serve you, Lord. Please come help us. Give us the strength. Give us the grace we need to, to be able to do that. And Father, may you be glorified through it all. Because we know, Lord, nothing glorifies you more than a soul being saved. And may everyone who wants to be a minister in this church and everyone who is a parent and will be a parent have this goal in mind to do their best to see their children love and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.